from the Los Angeles Times, this is The Envelope, the podcast, your ultimate guide to award season. I'm one of your hosts, Mark Olson. And I'm your other host, Yvonne Villarreal. Every week, our podcast showcases key voices across both TV and film. Yvonne, who are you talking to this week? Well, today I sit down with Kaylee Cuoco, who stars in The Flight Attendant on HBO. Uh, It's a murder mystery about a young woman named Cassie who is also grappling with her own trauma. It's basically someone with multiple personalities. I mean, you have the life of the party, you have the best friend, you have the severe functioning alcoholic, um, you have the, the trauma with her family and having to go back in that. And then also, you know, her being this like fashionista flight attendant who has a very serious job and who loves what she does. I mean, the show is fun, it's weird, it's isolating, and it's heartbreaking to watch. It's sort of like my experience working from home during a pandemic. Well, you know, it's funny, I never really watched The Big Bang Theory, so I've really never seen Kelly Cuoco like in action before. And she really is like a fantastic, you know, television comedian, like physical comedian. It's interesting that this is her first time producing something and that she's made something that's such a a fantastic like spotlight for her and her gifts. Oh, totally. And we talk about, you know, how it all came to be and her aspirations for more behind the scenes uh, roles in TV land. Well, as always, I'm looking forward to hearing that. Yvonne's conversation with Kaylee Cuoco is coming up next. So it's the time of our show that we get some award news from our very own Glenn Whip. Today, he'll tell you all you need to know about the Golden Globe Awards. The Golden Globes are Sunday. Tina Fey and Amy Poehler are hosting together again. It's the fourth time, but first time they're not going to be in the same room. Fey will be in New York, Poehler in L.A. So you're wondering, should I watch this show? Maybe? Probably? Does the answer depend on whether you're still in your pajamas Sunday night? I mean, probably that's a factor too. But I can tell you who will be watching, and that's most Academy members. Because Oscar voting is beginning on March the 5th. We've been missing gatherings of any kind, so even this virtual gathering is like something. And the Globes could have an impact, not necessarily on who wins, but how they win. I mean... Definitely, quality matters. But when it comes to the Globes, which are voted on by these kind of 85 random pseudo-journalists, I mean, it's not like Academy members are looking at this going, oh, that they think this, so I should consider this important. No, what matters is how they win. Did they deliver a heartfelt acceptance speech? This year, did they have a fabulous virtual backdrop? I mean, do you remember Zendaya winning the Emmy in September and the room just bursting into happiness? That's an impression. And impressions matter. Oscar voters will be taking notes. Do you remember the year that Tommy Lee Jones was nominated for Lincoln at the Golden Globes and the camera cut to him and he was just looking so dour and miserable? Nobody wants to invite that guy to the party. So, I mean, by all means, I think you should tune in. Pay attention to the winners. We'll talk about that next week. But above all, pay attention 
to their attitude and behavior because that's what's going to matter when it comes to the Globes as we move on this long road to the Oscars. I totally forgot about that Tommy Lee Jones moment. And I definitely went back and Googled it as he was talking. Epic. Truly epic. But Mark, is this your first of the sort of virtual award shows that you'll have to cover? I feel like I should give you maybe some tips as someone who covered the Emmys this way. Please do. Yeah, the, 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 you're, you're right. I did not cover the Emmys. This is going to be my first sort of virtual award show. And it's funny, for as often as like we cover award shows by sitting at our office and just watching the television broadcast, for some reason it seems more weird to me that I'm just going to be at home watching the TV, like, but still somehow being professional about it. Well, for me, like I'm always at the award shows. I sometimes wish I was in the office with you guys because you guys get the pizza delivered. You got the salad all there for you. You don't have to worry about dinner or like having to sort of corner a celebrity before they go into the restroom. Uh, But for me with the Emmys, it was very weird. I did feel like I should dress somewhat appropriately for an award show. I didn't like wear, you know, a cocktail dress, but I did do my makeup and my hair. So I felt a little relaxed. Then I definitely switched into sweatpants. So I think this is where you need to bust out the tracksuit. Please, please. (laughs) He's he's like, he's like, I'm never going to live down this (laughs) tracksuit. But it'll be, I think it'll be a fun watch. I mean, we have Amy Poehler, we got Tina Fey, so. Yeah, I think the 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 innate sort of oddness of the Globes plus pandemicness plus Amy Poehler and Tina Fey, I think it will be an enjoyable show, if nothing else. And I feel like I, I there's stuff I need to sort of catch up on before the award show, so I just have a sense of everything that's nominated. Um, well, speaking of the Globes, our colleagues Stacey Perman and Josh Rottenberg had some really illuminating stories over the weekend that sort of gave a look behind the Hollywood Forum Press, which is the group behind the Golden Globes. What did you think of it? I mean, there's always been this air of ridiculousness around the Globes and around the HFPA, And I think no one's ever quite in this way put a finger to what's really going on there. And I think they're, as much as I think a lot of people would go, globe's going to globe and just sort of not be that startled. There were some things that I certainly didn't know in those stories. The the main one being how much money some of the members of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association make via their membership that they basically pay themselves for various duties they do throughout the year for the group. And it can be a very lucrative thing to be a member of that group, which is why it can be difficult to get in. And and they sort of keep out a lot of other journalists in Los Angeles that seem like they could be a part of it. And so it really like brought so much to light about how that group functions and why they are the way they are. What about you? Was there anything surprising to you in those stories? Well, that's the thing. I think what the consensus was, was this was like the open secret. People have known this about the HFPA and the Globes for a while, but it was sort of the fresh details that remind you, okay, this is why we think this about this. 
So it was interesting just to see the sort of reactions on Twitter of people being like, wow, I'm shocked, but also like, whoa, this information, this these fresh details were sort of like eye-opening in a way. But it is that thing of like, how do you stop the cycle? Like, we're going to continue to have interest in this award show. Like, how do you stop it? Well, it's funny because I don't know that it actually takes that much away from the show or the idea that this is like Hollywood's biggest party. Like, as if part of the reason why there was always something a little freewheeling about the Globes is because people didn't take it super seriously. I don't know that this actually changes that. Now, whether people are upset by the fact that, say, for example, that, you know, 30-some members of the HFPA were flown to a very lavish junket in Paris for the show Emily in Paris, which then got sort of a surprise two nominations. If that is sort of the thing that maybe changes people's opinion about it or if they feel differently or weird about participating. But otherwise, in some ways, like as much as there was a lot of, you know, in those stories that was revelatory, it's funny that it kind of doesn't change anything. And maybe in a lot of ways, the Globes are just going to keep on globing away. I do think people are going to be paying a little bit more attention, though, if and should Emily and Paris win. It'll be interesting to see the stories that come out if it does win. And also considering all the issues that there have been regarding the nominations from the Globes and race, to learn that there are no Black members, like, I think that was something that, again, was very instructive and really helped to, like, bring to light why they end up having the nominations they do and why they sort of celebrate the films they do and TV shows. And it should also be noted that one thing from the story was that there is a certain amount of factionalism within the group. There are people who are trying to reform it. There are people who kind of want the gravy train to keep running. And so it'll be interesting to see if these stories sort of cause any changes to happen at the HFPA. A lot to be watching out for, for sure. But for now, let's get to your interview with Golden Globe nominee Kaylee Cuoco about The Flight Attendant. Well, Kaylee, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Vaughn. I appreciate it. Well, there's a lot of congratulations in order. You're a Golden Globe nominee, a SAG nominee. I mean, you've been nominated for a SAG before with Big Bang Theory, but this was your first Golden Globe nomination, right? Yeah, this is different. I mean, I've never been individually nominated, um, and obviously... Being nominated for SAG with Big Bang was a big deal. But for them to acknowledge the show that, like, has been my baby since the beginning, that's better than even the individual nomination. That was really, I'm still stunned about it. Well, there was a video that captured the moment. Like, what were you feeling as you heard your name being read for the Golden Globes? The Golden Globe one was really unbelievable. You know, I've been... I've been in this business for 30 years and I've worked with a ton of people and I've had a, I've loved every moment in my career. And you don't, you can't work in this business with that as a goal or you can't assume that could ever happen, you know? So that has never been on my radar. And there had been some rumblings that maybe, and I'm like, God, should I, should I watch? Like, oh God, I don't, I don't, I was so torn about it. And then when freaking Sarah Jessica Parker said my name and said my name correctly, I just about died right there. I thought this is, oh my God, there was, I'd never felt so happy. I couldn't believe my heart just, it was unbelievable. How do you spend the rest of the day after getting news like that? 
Well, I was telling everyone to change my name in their phone to Golden Globe nominee Kaylee Cuogo. So that's what I did. I even random people like that I would just go up to and say, do you, you know, you should probably, you know, say that I'm Golden Globe nominee. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I was, I, re- <laughs> I was actually, at a, it was funny. I was at a horse show. I love that world so much. And so I spent all morning on the phone with all my, you know, acting friends and my team and then like I went to the horse show and I'm a totally different person there. Like no one, I'm not that person there. So it was like, okay, forget about that for a little bit. But I'm still riding that wave. I mean, I just feel it's a once in a lifetime situation. You can't bet it will happen again. And I cherish that moment. And SAG mm-hmm. was even more crazy because once I got the globe when I thought, I still didn't think we'd get SAG because even the margin is so small, you know? And I, I said, mm-hmm. you know, we're part of the conversation, which is a win in itself. And I knew we were being discussed, but I, I, that I did not see coming mm. at all. Well, I mean, you've had the good fortune of playing a character for a long time, 12 seasons, in fact. And in those last few years, I think you've talked about this, about how your team was suggesting you start thinking about your next thing. And so what were you looking for in terms of what that... Sorry, hold on. Just so many dogs in this house. Oh my God, there's so many. <laughs> so so what were you thinking about in terms of your next project? Nothing. That was what was scaring my entire team. Um Basically, through the past few years of Big Bang, they were like, okay, you, what do you want to do after this? Do you want to do another show? Do you want to take a break? Like there was, and I was like, I'll figure it out later. And they're all sitting there going, oh my God, like we cannot figure this out later. We need to talk about this now. So my team, who, by the way, backing up a little bit, I've been with my team. I, we call it Team Cuoco since I was 14. So I've had the same managers, the same agents, the same attorneys for years. So they all know me very, very, very well. Same publicist, all that. So one of my managers had been kind of telling me, you know, you can, if you'd ever found a book you wanted to option, we could do that. An article, like they were really try anything. Please, Kaylee, just pick something. And I'm like, no, I'm going riding this weekend. Let's talk about it. You know, I will very lax about everything. So one night, I was flipping through Amazon up and coming books and on my phone, like in bed in the dark, just looking, looking. And I see up and coming books and I see flight attendant. And I saw, they say, don't judge a book by its cover, but I truly judged this book because it was such a good cover. It was like packaging. I'm all about packaging. And I look, I'm like, what is this? And I, you know, on Amazon, they'll give you like two sentences on what the book is. And it really was two cents. It was like fun, drunk flight attendant Cassie wakes up in the wrong hotel, wrong bed next to a dead man. What now? It was something like that. I got this huge chill like down my spine. And I thought that could be a good show. And I immediately called my attorney and I asked him to look into this book and to see if Reese Witherspoon had already gotten the rights because I was convinced that she had. And he's like, I'll look into it tomorrow because it was late. I'm like, okay. And he goes, so you've read the book. I was like, I read the book. I did not read the book yet. I had read one sentence and looked at the cover picture, okay? So they looked into it and Reese had miraculously not gotten the rights to this book. And I said, this is what I I want, this book. We got to get this book. And so I had my whole team read it and we spent six months in like a bidding war and I won. And then I won and I was like, what the hell am I supposed to do now? (laughs) I have the rights to this book. Um, now what? 
I brought it to the studio and I was like, you guys, I think I found our next show. And uh, three days later, I had an office and that's what launched Yes Norman Productions was actually Flight Attendant came first. And I launched the company around it. Through Big Bang, they had been um, offering these pod deals with me and the other actors. And you could take it or not. And I had turned it down for a handful of years. It was not of interest to me to produce. And so I said, I didn't want to just produce just because you're giving me this. Like, I don't have a project to produce. I'm not interested in producing. Like, I have like 50 animals. So until I find something more interesting, it wasn't, I just, it wasn't of interest to me. So flight attendant is what started it all for me. Wow. So for you, was producing something you thought might be in your future when the time came? Or was it just like, I don't know if this is for me? I did think it would be in my future. Um, I'm so all or nothing that I think there was no fear, but it was like, when I decide to do it, I'm going to really do this. And I wasn't ready to give myself to that yet. This was a handful of years ago. I just wasn't ready. And I knew that I would know when the time was right or when the project was right. Uh, same thing about directing. I, I Maybe in a few years, we'll be talking about something that I direct because it's definitely, I'm not ready for that yet, but it is something that interests me. Um, but I know again that I'd have to give my whole self to that and I'm not like quite ready to do that. Well, it felt like the way you described it, it was just intuition and instinct from reading that log line. You know, with the Big Bang being, you know, such this blockbuster of a sitcom, did it make it hard to know what that next right project would be because of that pressure to sort of get out from that shadow? So I never felt pressure to get out of the shadow and I never felt pressure to like, oh my God, I got to find something bigger and better than Big Bang. I think the thing that freed me mentally from that, Big Bang was on its own planet. Big Bang was its own entity in a weird way. There was never going to be anything else like it, in my opinion, as far as sitcom, as, as far as 12 years, as far as the experience, the money, the attention. I knew that that sat in its own corner. So that freed me from thinking I had to compare anything to that. And I'm not going to let anyone else compare what my next job is to that. And once I was able to like let go of that, I was like, okay, now I'm going to start a new path. And people can follow me and be into it or they cannot. Again, I wasn't trying to like find the most opposite project possible, like get away from Big Bang and not at all. I owe my whole career to Big Bang. I mean, I really do. So when I found Flight Attendant, it wasn't some conscious effort to like not do something sitcom again. It just felt this is going to be right. And I liked it because even though the book is actually very dark, when I read it, I knew we could make this an interesting tone so that it's not, I'm not going to some dark project, but I'm still going to bring my kind of quirky side to it and make it my own. Did you think your break would be a little longer or were you purposeful in not having your break too long? No, no break. There was no break. No, I don't know what that word means. <laughs> <laughs> big bang might've been a big deal and you're kind of hot shit in that moment, but you have to find something new. You have to keep reinventing yourself. I can't just live under that banner for the rest of my life. People don't care. They're on to the next thing. There's a new show that's coming out, a new actress, a new this. You want to stay as relevant as you can without overstaying your welcome. Mm -hmm. Well, so you find this project that you're excited about. You're, you know, producing it and starring in it. 
And it was one of the shows that had to halt production in the early days of the pandemic. And I think you had like maybe what, like three episodes left to shoot at that point. And you eventually got back to work. But like, what was that experience like? Like, were you feeling like, oh, my God, what if this is like never going to see the light of day? Or even once you were back on set, like, how did it change your process? Yeah, no, it was very bizarre. We, you're right. We had two episodes left to shoot. So we were so close to being done and got sent home, got shut down. God, we were home for probably seven months. And we were actually one of the first shows back shooting in New York. And we kind of wrote the Bible, as they say, on the rules on how to do this with COVID. Um, And it was interesting to come back. You know, I wanted to make sure that me and my producers, we had such a strict regimen on how to come back. And we had to make sure everyone felt safe and felt comfortable and that we could do it. And they did. And I wanted to bring that confidence to set too and let everyone know that I was not scared. I wanted to finish this strong. You know, we can do this. We have enough protocols in place that we can do it safely, which we did. And it's interesting, before COVID even existed, we were supposed to like launch HBO Max in this last April. And obviously everything got pushed and then we were supposed to air beginning of November and then we got pushed again. I thought, oh my God, like there's nothing worse you hate hearing that. Oh, it got put. That only sounds bad when things get pushed. You're like, oh, that can't be good for that show. Something happened, right? So then there was this talk of premiering on Thanksgiving. And as crazy as all those pushes were and caused a lot of sleepless nightmare evenings, thinking I made the biggest mistake of my life, Thanksgiving was the best thing that could have happened to us. Even though most people were home anyway because of COVID, you're really home because of Thanksgiving. You're home with your families. You're watching TV. And I think people were excited for the escape. And the show is flashy and fun and really fun to look at and fun music. And it just kind of worked in our favor. Well, I was going to say, I mean, the show is launching on a new service, HBO Max, obviously a brand we know well. But it's also deep into the days of quarantine. Like, when did it hit you? that it was taking off with viewers. Because I also think the the week-to-week of it, too, was crucial to that. The week-to-week was growing. You know, this was a new experience for me because I come from, it's almost like I'm like old Hollywood. I come from a sitcom where you air on Thursday at 8 and we get our ratings on Friday. Like, this is, that's like old-fashioned. Like, even some of these new kids on the block don't even know what I'm talking about. They're like, what do you mean, like, rate? You know, so I thought, how is this going to work? How are we even going to know who's watching this? I'm the best example of that. I bring this up a lot with Schitt's Creek, which was on for however many years. I only experienced Schitt's Creek a year ago. I didn't even know it existed. And now it's my favorite show that I've ever seen. But that was years after it aired. So I was like, oh my God, people might not even know this is around and it's a new network. And so I was trying to like not concern myself with that because there's nothing I could do. But I thought I'm worried about how are they going to judge this? How are the reviews going to be? And I had planned not to read any reviews until I woke up the next morning and my publicist said, I know you don't want to read reviews, but we got the first one in from Hollywood Reporter. I think you should read it. And when I read that, I took the biggest sigh of relief. It was such a nice article. And I thought, okay, if everything else is bad, at least I got a, this is a good start, right? And then it just kept being good. I was like, Wait, that one was nice. Oh my God, that person was nice. Why is it? And it was like this pause and people loved it. And then yes, the weeks, even though it's hard to tell with ratings and stuff, but the viewership kept going up every week. And I was like, oh, more people. Oh, and then they went back and watched. And it was, 
it, it was a whole new world for me. It was definitely a new experience. Because how do you eat as somebody that had experienced it out in the real world with something like Big Bang? How do you know when your show is popular when you're in quarantine? Like, was there a moment it clicked for you? No, I kept getting random texts from friends, not like the day it would air, like weeks in, like, hey, I watched an episode last night and I couldn't stop. And now we can't wait for more. And like those sort of texts. And, you know, a lot of my friends and family who saw me experience this for, my God, three and a half years going, oh, my gosh, uh, we, this is really good. And oh, I loved it. And I told my friend to watch it and we can't wait. And it started to kind of be a little bit talk of the town a little bit. Every day was a new experience, was a new person telling me they really loved it. And I I was like, I don't know if they're being biased, but people seem to like it. I think there was just a lot of shock that I could maybe do something more than Big Bang. Maybe there was a little like, oh my God, like a little surprise, which by the way, was fine with me. As long as we got eyes on it, I didn't care what, you know, but people were watching it. And obviously it was a new network and you want to, it's almost like they're your parent. Like you want to you want to impress HBO Max. You want, they're taking a chance on you, you know, and I wanted it to do so well for them. And I wanted, I found this book. So I was living or dying with this. Like if this was bad, this was my fault. If it was good, it was my fault, but our brains go to negative. And so you just start thinking, oh my God, I started this shit. I started this shit. This is the, oh my God, this please God make this okay. Well, how is it even to sort of, with a project like this you and that it's based off a book, you have an, a sort of understanding of what her journey is and even what her past is. So talk to me about like how it was different to sort of reach inside a character like Cassie. You know, she's confident, she's an, she's an addict, she's vulnerable, she's sort of trapped in her past and sort of this like reluctant action hero in this story. So talk to me about sort of developing the layers to her. It was written so beautifully and she had so many places to go. And then that's why I loved the character from the beginning. I thought, oh my God, this is an actor's dream. It's it's basically someone with multiple personalities. I mean, you have the life of the party. You have the best friend. You have the severe functioning alcoholic. Um, you have the, the trauma with her family and having to go back in that. And then also, you know, her being this like fashionista flight attendant who has a very serious job and who loves what she does. It's like, oh my God. And there were so many things to play. My co-stars will tell you, I'm not the um, queen of uh, practicing or rehearsing or prep. That's not my style. <laughs> I'm a, I'm an in the moment type of girl. I mean, because there were so many scenes and I was in so much of this, half the time I get to set, I wouldn't know what we were shooting. And I have an eidetic memory. So I was never worried about the dialogue. I could memorize all that. I just had to be so in the moment with some of these scenes because Cassie is also in the moment. Nothing is planned. So it's like she's reactive and so am I. She, and it's it was a reactive role. It was, oh my God, the world is spinning around her and how is she gonna, you know? And so it's going back with her, how they wrote her going back with her family and her dad and like dealing with that. You're watching this poor girl basically run away from every problem she's ever faced and drinking along the way to help her do that which I think will be interesting to see in season two when she thinks, oh, now I'm going to be, I'm going to live a sober life and this is going to be so easy and I'm happy and woohoo, I'm healed. She's going to learn really fast that's not the case. Staying sober is probably even more challenging than, yeah. The way I relate to Cassie is we like things to happen quickly. 
And I think she's thinking, this is, look, I did it. I faced my dad and la, 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 and look at me. That's going to be a big rude awakening for her. So in that sense of you talking about you like to be reactionary when you take on a role, not prep too much, were you sort of mindful not to do too much research into addiction or the PTSD aspect of the childhood trauma? Like, or was that something you wanted to sort of delve into, like as much research as possible? I'm not a researcher. I openly admit that. I need to kind of find my way as I go. As far as the functioning alcoholism, I knew someone very close to me who was like that. And what's interesting about that, if you've ever been around someone like that, they are literally that. I mean, they have full-time jobs and are very good at their jobs, very successful, the life of the party. Obviously, there's a lot of up and downs. They're hiding. A lot of times you don't even know And to me, the only way to get through someone who's drinking for eight straight episodes without the audience going, this is absolutely fucking ridiculous. To me, when she was not drinking is when we start seeing her go crazy. So the drinking is actually what's keeping her sane. Rewinding a a bit, when we started, when the script started coming in for episodes, basically one and two, and I started seeing, you know, I knew kind of what was going to be done and what I was going to have to play, but I was like, oh my God, like this is this is a lot of acting. Like, how am I going to... Susanna Fogle, who directed me in one and two, who is brilliant, brilliant director, we met one afternoon in my house and we had read the pilot episode and I wanted to talk to her about it. I started to get super panicked because I thought, I'm so lax about everything. Like, I'm like, it'll be fine. I'll see you on set. Sure. I just, that's how I live. Well, I started panicking going, oh my God, Kaylee, like, Maybe you need to get an acting coach. Maybe you need to really be looking at this script and figuring this out. So I brought my thoughts to Susanna and I said, I'm starting to panic about this. Do you think I should get a coach? Like, what do you think I should do? And she said, what have you done that's gotten you to this moment right here? And I said, I've, I've just done it. Like, I, you're looking at it. There's no magic. It's just been in my heart. And she goes, I would not change anything. And it freed me in that moment because she was right. Like, why would I now change how I got it? Like, this is who I am. This is how I work. I'm in the moment. If you don't like it, you don't like it. But that's that's what I've been doing my whole career. And so she really did help me stay true to who I am. My process might not work for the next person. It was funny, Mikhail and I, who I adore, you know, our process were very different. We at By the end, we would make such fun of each other. He wants to rehearse. And I'm like, oh, and I would make fun of him like, oh my God, how, really you want to rehearse this again? Like fucking shoot this. He's like, no, no, no. I want to know, like he wants to block and we would laugh because that was his process. And he knew mine, too much rehearsal and stuff would actually start to get, would mess with me. So we had to find a balance with each other. Um, It was very funny, but everyone has their own way, you know? And for our listeners who don't know, McKeel Heisman plays Alex in the show. Yes, McKeel Heisman. He played Alex and um, spent a lot of time with him in the Mind Palace. different was, you know, her waking up next to Alex's dead body, 
in typical TV land, that might have been what caused her to start drinking. But what was interesting was that she was already an addict. Like, this didn't lead her to drink. Like, it was a different thing that we haven't really seen on TV. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, that's super interesting. Yeah, she's already <laughs> she's already 10 sheets of the wind. You know, very sobering to wake up next to a dead man for sure. When I originally read this, of course, I was like, oh my God. The only reason I would believe that something like this would happen is because I am an avid Dateline watcher. And the amount of times I have seen people leave crime scenes that people that didn't do it. I'm like, you look so guilty. Like, why? Or like people that will even confess to crimes. Like, you hear this and you're like, what? You... So I believed like that panic and that terror can really take over and um, you make some really bad, you know, decisions. I believed it because this has happened before, obviously, maybe not waking up next body, a dead body, but people have been so scared and so shocked that you kind of, you act in a way that you never normally would, you know, in a normal situation. It's like, this is simply put, putting a normal girl with a drinking problem, you know, in a horrendous situation. What do you do? Yeah, I have no night that even comes close to the night that she had. Like, nothing in my life. <laughs> nothing. I'm glad to hear that. Thank God. I'm so happy for you. I'm glad. Yes. Good. Exactly. But the series, you know, is full of clever and zany twists and turns. You know, it has its cheeky moments. Like, were there moments for you that needed convincing? Yeah. We had re- read the script, and I had read that she makes out with him in the lavatory on the plane. By the way, that took me weeks to get on board with. I'm like, guys, no, not... uh." I'm like, and what planet is this flight attendant going to go in this... And it killed me. And so I had to do research, and this is when I did research. Blogs of people, flight attendants, tell-alls. It happens all the time. And I'm like... And so I made sure, I'm like, okay... Let me think, if you're on an international flight, you know, those first class are large, right? The bathroom is, and I had to really think, it could this, could they sneak in there? I guess they could. That was my biggest, I could not get on board with that. That took weeks. Even Steve was like, no, it happens. I'm like, no way, no fucking way she's getting, no way. She's gonna go in there and make out with someone? Like, this is insane. But eventually I came on board with it and it ended up being very funny, but... That did not work with me for a while. It's funny you mentioned that scene because that scene for me, all I thought about was like, that is so unsanitary. I was just thinking all the germs, all the germs. I know. And like, think of pre-COVID, like just the whole, all the things we did before all this happened. But, oh, trust me, it I was so against that. I can't even tell you. I was not on board. Well, how challenging was it finding the tone of each moment? Like you're often playing comedy and drama within the same scene as Cassie sort of grapples with, you know, her personal trauma and like the alcohol abuse. And so much of us believing in her rests on how you play her. So how was it sort of finding what, made sense in any given moment. If I could tell you how many conversations we had about tone, I didn't know I could say the word tone as many times as we have said the word tone. I mean, the amount from the network, the studio, the producers, what's the tone of the scene? I'm not kidding. 
It was a major challenge. Apparently, I decided to pick the hardest tone possible for my first, like, swing out the gate. It actually became very interesting because the tone was so uh, such a tightrope. I found myself doing so many takes and so many scenes with multiple takes and going, okay, this is going to be the funny one. All right, this one. And then the next take, I would start bawling my eyes out. And then the next one, I would um, I would do something ridiculous and drop something and like be a little bit more physical. And then the other one would, because I did not know how we were going to edit this thing together, I wanted to make sure we had every emotional tone possible because it was not clear and I didn't want it to be clear. I wanted it to be like, like the minute there was a dark scene, I wanted a quirky song in the background. And the minute it was a dark scene, I wanted some, like I wanted it to be a little confusing but it required a lot of extra work and, um, you know, again, and a lot of questions from my network going, what is this? <laughs> like, I kept thinking there were so many times they were going to be like, you know, this just isn't quite working for us. <laughs> oh, man, it was scary. There were a couple scary phone calls, Yvonne, let me tell you. <laughs> was there a scene or like in the moment that you're like, I don't know how to play this? Or was there a scene that you were surprised they went with a different tone uh, delivery than you thought they would? The scene, again, this again will probably surprise you. The scene I had the most difficulty (laughs) with was in Thailand, in the pool. Now, let me explain something. This was the last day of shooting. This is a true story. And this was like one of the longest days I've ever had in my life. And we were not allowed on this rooftop pool until like two in the morning. It was weren't allowed. So we had to start shooting the scene. Me and Mikhail, this like romantic scene in the pool with the backdrop. So we'd shot all day and I was in the house waiting, waiting. And I go up there and I'm like, they're like, okay, the pool is like, it's super nice up there. Like, you know, Thailand's hot. So you're going to love getting in. I'm like, I'm like, well, it's heated, right? They're like, well, it's like, yeah, yeah. But no one was like really telling me it was heated. And they're like, it's fine. It's like hot out. You're going to feel it's nice. And I'm like, oh my God, like this is not, this is not sounding good. So I get in that fucking pool. I go, guys, am I getting punked? It's freezing in here. And by the way, I'm not a complainer. I am like, I'm the first one there. I'm the last one there. I am like, yes to everything. I was so upset in this pool And I'm looking, I'm like, I can't do this scene. Like, I can't be sexy right now. My teeth were chattering. McKeel was cold too, and he didn't want to admit it. And then once he heard me bitching, then he kind of dove in. So there's just two bitchy actors in a pool in Thailand complaining. So if you, if you notice, the scene ends up taking place actually on sitting up because I could not, it was supposed to all be in the water, like splashing and like, we couldn't do it. I said, I'm not, I'm not, I'm done. I've hit, that was, I hit the wall. You're like, I'm drawing the line. I was done. And from from then on to this day, my producers, if anything comes up, they go, is this going to be the pool again? They give me shit. This day, you can give me as much shit as you. If that's my one thing, fine. I didn't like the pool that day. Sorry. Love that. You know, I won't claim to know the dynamic between you and your father, but I have been on the set of The Big Bang Theory, and he went to every single taping. And I remember speaking with him at the final taping, And it didn't take long for him to get emotional talking about you and your success. And I was curious, like, how your relationship with your father, which is, I'm assuming, a healthier connection, informed 
how you maybe approach the unhealthy aspect of Cassie's relationship with her father? Or like, how did it shape your view of what she was after? Well, I can I can say assuredly that my relationship with my dad is the direct opposite of Cassie's to hers. And that is so sweet. That is a true story. He never missed an episode. He had a director's chair with his name on it. He stood in the same spot every Tuesday night. He still, by the way, Tuesday night was just as important to him as it was to me. Um, it was very, very special. I don't know if there, if I really was drawing from that relationship, but what I did, what I did draw from the scenes that I had with young Cassie and, and seeing what happened to her at such a young age and that desperation to impress her dad. And she really idolized her dad or like we see she saw him in a light that no one else did. I think my heart, the way I was able to get into those scenes is thinking of what this girl was missing out on and how, and what a great day. I mean, to think of children out there, this is where my mind was that they didn't have what I had growing up, which really was an amazing, both my parents, absolutely amazing. And being able to see this young Cassie going, oh my God, like, you didn't get to have that experience. And there are real kids out there that did not get to have that experience. So that alone, I mean, I could cry about that right now. It was easy for me to get to that place because your heart would just break. Anything with like kids or animals, it my heart shatters into a million pieces. And it's it's easy to get to that emotional state when you think about it, you know? Well, I mean, when you started out, you played the young versions of characters before. You were the young Angela on My So-Called Life and little Ellen in Ellen DeGeneres' uh, sitcom. Did you have any advice for Audrey, Audrey Grace Marshall, who played the young version of Cassie? It was so um, weird to see a younger me around because I was thinking the same thing, like, oh my God, this used to be me. And even just seeing her, she had, her um, Audrey's mother was lovely and it was obviously there every single shoot day. And I was looking at this woman like, oh my God, I remember this, like my mom being there with me and being on set. And I remember being Audrey's age, like looking up to these actors that I worked with and I, I I told Audrey that I was like, you know, and she really was so professional and such a good little actress. And I told her, I saw a lot of her in myself and her actually and vice versa and that I think she has a long career ahead of her. But I said, just keep doing what you're doing. Um, her mom was lovely. I think that's a really, really, really important as well. There were moments for me of like, whoa, that used to be me. And, and a lot of the actors, the adults that I worked with had such a um, lasting impression on me. And I wanted to make sure I had one on her as well. And that she had a positive experience with me. And if she I was very open, if she had anything she wanted to ask me or talk to me or whatever, it was also weird to see this new generation. It messed with my head a little bit. <laughs> well, speaking of co-stars, I mean, you have a lot of great co-stars on this series, but I have to know what it's like working with Rosie Perez. Give me a Rosie story, please. There are so many Rosie stories. She's hysterical. So I don't know if you heard that I begged her to play this role. We had offered her the role and she was like kind of on the fence. And I said, please, can I meet with her? Like, I'm not above begging. And she agreed to meet with me at a little coffee shop in Queens. And I walk in the coffee shop and I look all the way at the back and she's in the, she loves hats. She's a big hat wearer. She had this, you know, she's this big and she had this huge hat on. I was, my heart is just like pounding out of my chest. And I sit down and she's immediately into stories and we're talking and the problem was we didn't know we were veering from the book and she wanted to know where her character ended up. And I couldn't tell her that because I didn't have an answer. And I'm like, I understand you want to know that. 
I said, can you just trust me? It's going to be fucking fantastic. Please, I am begging you to do this. So we talked for a while, became super friendly. And she goes, there's just one problem. I don't like to fly. And I was like, I was like, did anyone tell her this is about a flight attendant? Like, I, I don't, what am I? So I laughed so hard. I'm like, Rosie, you, uh, there might be a little flying, like where it's this international. I mean, it was hilarious. And she was like, I know, but I don't like it. I said, I, oh God. I'm like, can you just trust me? I'm going to take care of you. And we became very close very quickly. And um, she, oh, she also said to me, she goes, I don't fly. And I don't like to talk to anyone before 9 a.m. And I said, <laughs> I feel you. I don't want to talk to anyone before 9 a.m. either. And we both knew that. And we never talked before 9 a.m. We'd be in the makeup chair and we would, and then like the minute nine would hit, it was like, hey girl. And then we were awake. We were ready to shoot. But there was such a mutual respect. I'm like, finally, someone is telling the truth. She's authentic. She's real. Um, she's as real as it gets. And boy, people really loved her in this. And she's an, you know, it's, it, she's an amazing actress and people don't give her enough credit for that. She's absolutely fantastic. I'm going to start telling people I don't want to talk before and I, I didn't know it was okay to tell people what you really feel. Rosie Perez <laughs> says it's okay and you do what Rosie says. So I was like, that's yeah. really more than fine. And we never had a bad moment. It was great. What do you feel you know now about the process of making TV that you didn't before now as a producer? I'm very sad that I wasted, well, not wasted, I... As an actor, you know, you come in and you do your job and you leave and you probably go to another job and then you forget about another one and then it airs and you're like, oh, well, great. All those steps in between of people making you look that good, this process was so eye-opening for me. And I'm talking about the people that we forget to give any credit to. The editors, oh my God, the music, the sound mixing, ADR, like uh, it's, it really was so eye-opening to me how many people are involved in a process like this. You know, I'm getting all the credit, but there are so many elements to make this thing work. And I knew that before, but you really don't know it until you witness it. I mean, until you witness COVID shutting everyone down and your editors are at home on a Sunday with their kids, you know, begging for their attention on a Sunday, doing an extra cut for you because you're asking for it. It's like, that's real. That's real shit right there. And doing it at the middle of the night while their their kid is finally asleep and they're rushing you this thing so you could have it on Monday and like so you could turn it into your studio. And it's those are the real, real true heroes. Well, the series will return for another season. How are you feeling about where Cassie can go from here? And when is production slated to begin? I'm feeling terrified because season one was really good and I don't want to fuck this up. <laughs> so there's that. Um, we don't have a schedule yet, but as we just started, I think I said we started, just started our writer's room and we're hoping in the perfect world to be shooting by September. That would be ideal. You know, I'm as aside from a plot storyline, because that's really not my forte as far as Cassie. And I think I said this already too, but her experiencing thinking that she's living a sober life and what that entails and um, how not easy that's going to be. I told our writers, I'm like, can you please write some LA locations in there? So I think that's going to be part of it too, which is like, hooray. You know, she travels. Why isn't she going to fucking LA? Like, come on. So we're going to put a little of that in there. Um, you know, Annie and Max are going to have, now that she lost her job, we're going to be picking back up with that. We got to find Megan. Every, like we just said, Megan is like, we have no idea where she is. What I didn't want is Cassie to all of a sudden be like a 
CIA, like brilliant, blah, you know, we're probably going to dabble in the asset, but she's still going to be that flight attendant. She's still going to get stuck in situations she shouldn't be. But as far as her, you know, it's, it's the, her challenge is now, it's a lifelong struggle that she's going through, but she still doesn't realize that. She thinks it's going to be easy and she's going to realize really fast that it's not. The one request I have, and I think it already, without anyone talking about it, already says so much about the character, but I would like a quip or two about why Annie has that shower in the middle of her space. Like just anyone can walk in and seeing her take a shower. I'm just like... Everyone asked. That has been the best like topic of conversation. I'm like, there needs to be walls or it needs to be frosted glass. So the whole apartment is very open, as you saw. There was kind of some thought behind the thought behind the thought about that, that she's such a closed book with her work and she's so secretive, but like her apartment is like one giant open book. (laughs) It's just another reason for like awkwardness and weird conversation. Um, That was definitely our our set designer, who is Sarah Kate White, who is incredible. That was her weird idea. Yeah. Well, before we wrap things up, like, I'm curious, how would you describe what your time in quarantine has been like? Like, have you gotten to know yourself without work or it's just more work? Like, talk to me about like what this time has been like for you. You know, I have gotten to know myself. I think because we'd had so many episodes done of Flight Attendant, I was at, we were, there was a lot of editing going on. There was um, opportunity to tweak the next few episodes that we hadn't shot yet and kind of see where we where we were at. Um, I wouldn't say that I was not working, but it was a chance to be home and like, I, I'm never not working. I love working. I don't want to not be working. It's my favorite thing in the world. So being home and having to kind of take it a little bit slower was a challenge for me. Um, and no one could wait to get back to work more than me. I mean, emails every day. I'm like, when are we going? Is there a date? Is there a date? They're like, we're trying, like, slow down. I just wanted to get back on set as quickly as I could. So I was super grateful that that eventually did happen. But um, yeah, it was still, you know, it was filled with with flight attendant stuff, which was great. Did you have to get on a flight during that, during the time when the flight attendant was airing? Was it ever surreal? The only time, it was when I flew back to New York to finish shooting. So like it had been six or seven months since I had flown. That So yeah, it was definitely odd. But this time I, I brought a dog with me. I brought Dumpy with me that time. So that was like great. And he was like my emotional support animal. <laughs> and it was awesome. Um, so that definitely helped. Well, before I let you go, you know, we like to end things by asking our guests what they're watching because this is a time where we have a little more time to be watching new things. Is there something that's caught your attention? So I love reality shows. I just do. Watch a lot of Below Deck. You know what we just got into, actually? I know, so good. Have you watched Blown Away on Netflix? Netflix, The Glass, yes. So good. Like, it's so... So good. We watched that in, like, two nights. We loved it. Uh, You know, I'm waiting. I want more housewives. Bring me my housewives. I need my L.A. girls back. Well, look, it's become a running gag that I'm trying to get my co-host, Mark, to start watching Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, which just wrapped. Really? I have not gotten on that bandwagon yet. And then do a cup of quo-quo with your thoughts on it, please, because I want to know how you respond. It's been a while since I've done a cup of quo-quo, so I think I'm due for one. Yeah. I mean, if you watch one episode, you'll have it. Really? You think so? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. 
also been watching, uh, there's some new episodes of Shark Tank. Love Shark Tank. Obsessed. Um, I love all that stuff. It keeps me entertained. Um, I watch a lot of cooking shows. I just started watching Discovery Plus. I need my um, Magnolia, all about the Magnolia. <laughs> love it. We watch a lot of Family Guys still. And actually last night, Carl and I just experienced there was a whole new season. We have missed a whole season. And we are like so excited to watch this this recent season of Family Guy. Love it. Well, thank you for taking the time. I mean, have you even gotten instructions on what to expect with these ceremonies? I am proceeding as if I am going and I'm, I am acting like I'm going. I am getting dressed like I'm going. I'm going all out. Again, I feel these moments are very rare and it's a once in a lifetime and I'm not letting anyone stop me from wearing the gown of my dreams. <laughs> Even if I'm sitting right here, I will have the most beautiful gown on to prove that this really did happen. I love it. Well, best of luck on the big days. It's very special what's happening. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me. You know, I have to say, among the things I liked about uh, the flight attendant was her co-star, Rosie Perez. And it was fun to hear that Rosie will not talk to anyone before 9 a.m. And I'm wondering if it's possible to adopt that that practice for myself. This is what I also told Kaylee, because I'm like, now I'm like, can I put that as my sort of uh, bio on Slack or something? Like, I think we all should enact this, don't you? Yes. Yeah. So that was a terrific conversation, Yvonne. But what have you what have you been watching this week? Was there anything that you saw that you really liked? Well, you know, a show that I watched uh, this week was Young Rock, and it's sort of based on the life of Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And it sort of tracks him as a little kid to sort of now. I won't, like, give away, like, where we find him in the future. I won't give that away. But it's a really fun look at his life. Future Rock? Yeah. Okay. Fine, Mark. I will give it away. Future Rock is running for president and I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, But, you know, the other thing that I watched this week was the um, HBO documentary, Alan versus Pharaoh. And that chronicles the allegations of sexual abuse against Woody Allen by his adoptive daughter, Dylan Pharaoh. It comes from director's Kirby Dick and Amy Ziering, who were also behind the Russell Simmons expose on the record. And it's a four-part documentary. The press get it ahead of time, so I've seen it all. And it's just such a devastating watch. You know, it should be noted, Woody Allen denies the allegations. But I don't know, did you see any of it, Mark? I have not had an opportunity to, to see it yet. You know, I have very complicated feelings about the life and work of of Woody Allen. I've written about him a number of times. I've actually interviewed him a number of times. I know that I will be watching it, but I got to confess, I'm really, I'm going to have to work up to like being sort of ready to, to, to deal with that right now. It will be interesting to see what happens as people watch the rest of the episodes. Um, but sorry, not to make a hard turn here, Mark, but what have you been watching? Yeah, I actually had kind of like a busy week of stuff like I saw a lot it's funny like I've come out of seeing stuff for Sundance and kind of gone into now I'm seeing stuff for both the South by Southwest Film Festival and actually I've never gone to the Berlin Film Festival but since we live in virtual times I've been getting screeners for Berlin so I've sort of been seeing some stuff for that as well but I've been watching a lot of 
other stuff too. I don't know. I watched the documentary called Belushi that's about the life of John Belushi. And that actually sort of led me. I then watched a film I've been meaning to watch for a long time called Old Girlfriends. That's the only theatrical feature that was ever directed by Joan Tewksbury, who's the screenwriter of the movie Nashville. And Belushi has like a supporting role in that. But it's kind of right as he was becoming really famous. It's like a year before the Blues Brothers. And it's interesting to see him in this slightly more dramatic, but still essentially sort of rom-com serious role where he actually does still sing three songs. He sings Jailhouse Rock a year before he sings it in the Blues Brothers. He sings ZZ Top's Tush. And he also sings like a doo-wop ballad. And it was sort of fun to see all that. But then I also, I tried to watch that series, I Hate Susie, that uh, is on HBO Max. And I got to confess, I couldn't really get through it. It was a little too challenging. But, you know, on HBO Max, I would turn off I Hate Susie and it would then recommend that I watch the show Selena and Chef, the Selena Gomez home cooking show. So then I end up watching that when they have like L.A. Chef's on that. It's like, it's funny, one helped erase the other, but then also I have really been enjoying Stanley Tucci's Searching for Italy. And Yvonne, you had just a fantastic profile that you wrote about Stanley, a really wonderful interview with him. Oh, thank you. He was so fun. Can we talk about the walking shots of Stanley Tucci through Italy? No one can do walking shots better than Stanley Tucci. It's made me rethink, I want to get in better shape. I want to change my wardrobe. Yeah, they just look great. They always look great. Mark, tell me who we have uh, next week. Who are you talking to? I'm going to be talking to Steve McQueen, the director, co-writer, and executive producer of Small Acts. Uh, You can watch that on Amazon. It's an anthology series of five films set in London's West Indian community in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. And I thought... Why, you know, to some extent, invent a story when the, you know, these stories need to be told? These stories were swept underneath the carpet. They, they were kind of um, virtually invisible, but these stories helped change the fabric of United Kingdom, England, Britain. Uh, they did, and, you know, in a way that will never be reversed. I know that's going to be a good one. Come back next Wednesday to hear it. The Envelope, the podcast, is hosted by me, Mark Olson, and my colleague, Yvonne Villarreal. Our producer is Shannon Lynn, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our audio engineer is Mike Heflin, and he also made our theme song. If you like The Envelope, the podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star review on Apple. The Envelope is created by the journalists of the Los Angeles Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening and see you next week.